This is the 26th three-month course, which as I was counting up the years this afternoon was totally amazing to me. This has been going on for that long, that people have been gathering to do this kind of practice for so many years. I'd like to introduce um, my colleagues who are present this evening, uh, Carol Wilson, who's on my right, and Mioshin Kelly on my left. Um, We'll be joined, of course, by uh, Michelle McDonald-Smith and Steve Smith. They're recovering a little bit from jet lag tonight, but they'll be here. Something quite special happens at IMS, you know, at the beginning of a three-month retreat. Uh, Throughout the year, as you know, there's a whole schedule of 10-day retreats or even three-week retreats. But every fall, people come together to undertake such a beautiful way of practicing. I get so inspired by everyone joining in together. Over these last 26 years, we've learned a little better how to do this. When we first started, first one was in 1975 in Bucksport, Maine, before we had IMS. Jack Cornfield and Sharon and myself had been going around teaching short courses you know, throughout the year. And we had this brainstorm, how would it be to have a three-month retreat? You know, much the way we practiced in India for more extended times. So we found this place in Bucksport, Maine. It was a monastery. There was no orientation days at the beginning. There was no integration week at the end. It's like people came that night, they went into silence for three months. The course ended, they left. <laughs> of course, we were, kept getting reports in the following weeks of casualties all up and down the East Coast <laughs> as people tried to find their way back into the world. So slowly we're figuring out you know, how really to do this well. These first two days, as you've probably seen on the schedule, are days for settling in. And we found it very helpful to just come and be here for a day or two, doing some sitting, taking care of business, helping get the center organized. It's a way of actually getting here, of landing after the busyness of all the preparations and the hecticness of traveling. It's a chance for you to also connect with each other somewhat. And this is a community of people that you're going to be living with in silence and also in great intimacy with. There's a tremendous closeness that comes about from people practicing together. So to have a few days before we go into the silence, just if not to get to know everyone, at least to make some kind of personal connections. And so we take these couple of days to do this, to settle in, so that by Friday night, when we formally begin the retreat with the refuges and the precepts, we've really created a container. We've created 
an entree into a sacred space. What is it that makes a space sacred? Really, it's not obviously the buildings. What makes a space sacred is the activity that's undertaken within it. What we do here during this time, and especially during this retreat, we really undertake the work of liberation, the practice of liberation. And then all of the compassionate action, the compassionate activity that can flow from that place of freedom. The work we'll do here over these next six weeks or three months is the work of disentangling. One of the great Buddhist texts The puzzle is stated, how can we untangle the tangle? How can we disentangle from the very deeply conditioned forces of greed and of hatred and of fear and of ignorance? This is the work that we come together to do. Disentangling from all of those forces that cause suffering in ourselves and cause so much suffering in the world. And it's just incredibly beautiful and inspiring to have a hundred people come together for this length of time to do this work. It's very rare in the world. You probably became cognizant of this when you might have told your family and friends you're going off for six weeks to three months, sit in silence, sit and walk, sit and walk, no talking. Most people probably looked at you (laughs) as if you were a little bit odd. It's not a common cultural value. And yet it's the most important and the most noble thing we can do. So coming together in this way is tremendously, tremendously inspiring for me. But also, as you know, this is not an easy task, this task of liberation, the task of disentangling from all those forces in our own minds that creates suffering. There are very strong habits of judging, of comparing, of ill will, of desire, of grasping. There are these very deeply conditioned patterns that we'll be facing very directly. One of the things I appreciate so much about intensive retreat practice is that it's a situation of such great honesty. In sitting here and being here, committed to being aware of what's going on in our own minds and our hearts, there's very little distraction. There it is. We see it. And the power of that honesty 
to illuminate what's there. It takes a very strong commitment. This is not an easy thing to do. It takes a strong commitment to stay there and be with what arises. To keep the fire strong of wakefulness through all the ups and downs of practice. So where does this commitment come from? What energies or strengths can we draw on to stay committed as you enter into this sacred space of liberation? For me, one of the great sources of energy in practice is the quality of interest. Just what is it that's happening in any moment? When I'm suffering, what is the cause of that suffering? How am I getting caught? How am I getting hooked? What is the nature of my experience? And bringing that interest actually fuels the effort of being awake. Because it's not dependent on things being a certain way. We can bring interest to whatever is arising. And this is our practice, to learn how to do that. In the course of the next weeks, whether you're here for six weeks or three months, there will be many surprises. If you think that you know what's going to happen, forget it. (laughs) The unfolding of practice, the unfolding of the Dharma is this great mystery. And in the course of these weeks, so many different things can arise, so many unexpected things. Sometimes it will be tremendously pleasant and interesting, and you'll feel the energy of inspiration. And at other times it will feel awful. You'll feel depressed and discouraged and bored, and your body will hurt. And And then again, the energy and the inspiration comes. And we just go through these cycles of pleasant and unpleasant and concentrated and restless. So it's very helpful to know this. For those of you who might have registered for a bliss trip, I think you should go to the office tomorrow (laughs) for a refund. Because it's not what this practice is about, although sometimes it happens. Sometimes we do have tremendous bliss. But that's not the essence of the Dharma. The essence of the Dharma is freedom. And it means being free in all conditions, in all circumstances, through all the ups and downs, not only of our meditation practice, but of our lives. The basis for this interest in our experience for drawing on this quality of interest is the feeling of metta, of loving-kindness towards ourselves, towards our minds, our bodies, our experience, the people around us. And it's helpful just to reflect and to remind ourselves to practice coming from this 
place of basic friendliness. There's one line from an ancient samurai poem that says, I make my mind my friend. That can be your mantra for this retreat. I make my mind my friend, whatever it is that's going on. And if we accomplish nothing else in all of this time, but to make our minds our friend, a great deal would be accomplished. So that's a lot of what we'll be practicing. Learning how to be with the whole range, the ups and downs and the pleasant and the unpleasant and the easy and the difficult. Learning how to hold it all, to be with it all. From this basic place, this basic space of friendliness, of acceptance. Interest, friendliness, acceptance. This is the first basic energy that we'll work with as the foundation. The second that's equally important in holding this great purpose of freedom, this great purpose of liberation, when we have that as the centerpiece of what we're doing, of our intention, the second great quality that's so essential to this, to explore and understand and put into practice, is the quality of renunciation. Now for these three months, it's as if IMS becomes a great meditation monastery, just like the great monasteries that are in Asia, where people are coming together to practice liberation. Well, in all of the teachings of the Buddha, in all the ways that monasteries can become great, centered around the understanding of a true renunciation. Liberation is not about getting something. And this is so hard to internalize that we're not practicing to get something, that liberation happens through letting go. How much can we let go of rather than what can I get? a fundamental reorientation, not only of our society and our culture and our lives in society, it's often a radical reorientation of how we ourselves practice. Because we often bring to practice this strong gaining idea. So we understand, we reflect on renunciation, this quality of mind that is practicing letting go, letting go of grasping, of clinging, of holding on. There'll be endless opportunities to understand this and to work with it. We can practice renunciation of pleasure as being the guiding principle in our choices. 
And it so often is the guiding principle. It's as if we make our choices in life and in practice, on retreat. We often make our choices dependent on what will give us the most pleasure. But that is not particularly the path to freedom. Can we reorient our intention so we make our choices based on what is most skillful for us, what's most helpful for us in letting go? It has to do with the external situation, you know, of your time here. How you like or you don't like your room or your place in the hall or something or other. Okay, can we just be with that? Can I open to that? Can I let go? Sometimes the food may be great, sometimes it may not be to your liking. Okay. I let go. I was just telling this story to uh, the staff the other night when I was meeting with them. It was a story of when I was teaching in Russia. And I had been there a few times, the first time still when it was under communist uh, rule. And at that time, uh, food was in very short supply. There was very little there. And it was hard even to get enough food for the retreat. Well, I had gone back a few times uh, after the fall of communism, and even though it was very expensive, food was then available. And so at that time, the food was pretty good at the retreat. You know, it was like a lot of the food my grandmother used to cook, you know, borscht and stuffed cabbage. And, you know, I was really enjoying it. And then one morning, I come down to breakfast, and for breakfast, there was just this very small plate of coleslaw. That was it. And I looked at this plate of coleslaw. Coleslaw for breakfast? You know, and my mind just started, come on. But there I was, I didn't really have much control over what was served. And it's very interesting for me to watch my little mind trip. You know, there was that first moment of reactivity, you know, and of aversion, and what is this? And then I saw, I noticed what my mind was doing, and then I just kind of settled in, okay, that's what's being served, and I really started reflecting at that point of people who didn't get anything for breakfast, you know, the level and extent of hunger in the world, and monks going out on arms, and just taking what's offered, and so I started doing all these reflections, and I really brought me back to the moment. I got into the coastal and it was really pretty good. (laughs) It was just an instance. It was just an instance of watching the mind being caught and then the power of renunciation of the habit of one's desire. To the degree that we stay caught or attached to our own preferences and desires and wants, we often come up against situations that don't fulfill them. In a situation like this, where all of one's basic needs are taken care of quite comfortably by the standards of the world, within that there will be times where one's desires are still not met. Okay, can we drop down? Can we feel? Feel our reactions, not suppressing it. It's not pretending that 
No, we are delighted. But can we just drop down, see what's happening, and enjoy the taste, the freedom, the ease of that moment of renunciation, of being with what is. This tremendous power, this will suffuse your practice and your time here with a tremendous force and energy. This time is a time of a renunciation of family and friends. It's not only renunciation of pleasure as the guiding principle of our lives for this time, but it's also giving up a lot of your familiar supports. You know, in our lives in the world, we have a lot of support systems. Here, it's a renunciation of that. When you read the Buddhist texts, very often it's suggested you know, that you should leave your homeland, leave your country, go off where you're not known. Well, we're doing this in a kind of metaphorical way. You have left your country, you have left your home. Can you come to that inner place of renunciation for this time? It's very helpful if you can feel that space of solitude, because there's a power that comes from that. Remember one time I was practicing at uh, the monasteries in Burma, and when I first went there, uh, I started, or I asked to receive the mail, whatever mail came. Well, as I got more into my practice, you know, they, they would deliver these letters and I'd read these letters, and even though there was nothing traumatic in the letters, they were, terrib- they were terribly disturbing because it just generated this whole range of thoughts and feelings about all these people and what I left behind. And, and very soon I decided, I don't want to see the letters. You know, I'd rather protect the space because it's so rare and so precious. It doesn't happen easily to be in a protected environment like this for this purpose. And so I would encourage you, as much as you can, to honor that aspect of the renunciation. Letting go of contact. That's why taking these these couple of days of orientation to take care of business. get, Get things done. So you can really enter fully into the space of silence. There's another kind of renunciation that happens also. It's the renunciation of our ideas of ourselves. You know, we have so many ideas or pictures of who we are, so many self-images that we carry around and really become like a prison. We're imprisoned by our own self-concepts. One of the great gifts of silence, of being, with, being in silence with people, is that we don't have to present ourselves in any particular way. And it's such a relief. We can just drop back. Drop back into the truth 
the honesty of the present moment, letting go of self-image. When we do that, amazing things can be liberated. Just as one little example. When I started my practice, I was in India, and I had a lot, I mean, my mind wandered a lot, I was very restless, lethargic, sloth and torpor. I just had this image of myself as kind of a slothful yogi. And that's the image that I was carrying and doing battle with. Well, at one point in the summer months, I had gone up to uh, spend the, the summer, which gets very hot on the plains of India, up in Kashmir. We had gone to a place, a few of us, to go up there and practice together. One of my friends who I went with, remember this very clearly, we were up there and one time uh, we were having dinner or lunch and he looked at me and he said, you're really an energetic person. And I looked at him like, who are you talking about? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.